Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Passionate hatred can give meaning and purpose to an empty life. Thus, people haunted by the purposelessness of their lives try to find a new content, not only by dedicating themselves to a holy cause, but also by nursing a fanatical grievance. A mass movement offers them unlimited opportunities for both. Unity and self-sacrifice of themselves, even when fostered by the most noble means, produce a facility for hating. Even when men league themselves mightily together to promote tolerance and peace on earth, they are likely to be violently intolerant towards those not of a like mind. The estrangement from the self without which there can be neither selflessness nor a full assimilation of the individual into a compact whole produces, as already mentioned, a proclivity for passionate attitudes, including passionate hatred. The act of self-denial seems to confer on us the right to be harsh and merciless toward others. The impression somehow prevails that the true believer, particularly the religious individual, is a humble person. The truth is that the surrendering and humbling of the self breed pride and arrogance. The true believer is apt to see himself as one of the chosen, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a prince disguised in meekness, who is destined to inherit this earth and the kingdom of heaven, too. He who is not of his faith is evil. He who will not listen shall perish. There is also this. When we renounce the self and become part of a compact whole, we not only renounce personal advantage, but are also rid of personal responsibility. There is no telling to what extremes of cruelty and ruthlessness a man will go when he is freed from the fears, hesitations, doubts, and the vague stirrings of decency that go with individual judgment. When we lose our individual independence in the corporateness of a mass movement, we find a new freedom. Freedom to hate, bully, lie, torture, murder, and betray without shame and remorse. Thus, hatred is not only a means of unification, but also its product. 
People whose lives are barren and insecure seem to show a greater willingness to obey than people who are self-sufficient and self-confident. To the frustrated, freedom from responsibility is more attractive than freedom from restraint. They are eager to barter their independence for relief from the burdens of willing, deciding, and being responsible for inevitable failure. They willingly abdicate the directing of their lives to those who want to plan, command, and shoulder all responsibility. Moreover, submission by all to a supreme leader is an approach to their ideal of equality. The frustrated are likely to be the most steadfast followers. The awareness of their individual blemishes and shortcomings inclines the frustrated to detect ill will and meanness in their fellow men. Self-contempt, however vague, sharpens our eyes for the imperfections of others. We usually strive to reveal in others the blemishes we hide in ourselves. Thus, when the frustrated congregate in a mass movement, the air is heavy laden with suspicion. There is prying and spying, tense watching and a tense awareness of being watched. The surprising thing is that this pathological mistrust within the ranks leads not to dissension but to strict conformity. Knowing themselves continually watched, the faithful strive to escape suspicion by adhering zealously to prescribed behavior and opinion. Strict orthodoxy is as much the result of mutual suspicion as of ardent faith. Mass movements make extensive use of suspicion in their machinery of domination. Fear of one's neighbors, one's friends, and even one's relatives seems to be the rule within all mass movements. Now and then, innocent people are deliberately accused and sacrificed in order to keep suspicion alive. Suspicion is given a sharp edge by associating all opposition within the ranks with the enemy, threatening the movement from without. This enemy, the indispensable devil of every mass movement, is omnipresent. It is the sacred duty of the true believer to be suspicious. Whenever we find a period of genuine creativeness associated with a mass movement, it is almost always a period which either precedes or more often follows the active phase. The active phase itself is sterile. The interference of an active mass movement with the creative process is deep-reaching and manifold. One, the fervor it generates drains the energies which would have flowed into creative work. Fervor has the same effect on creativeness as dissipation. Two, it subordinates creative work to the advancement of the movement. Literature, art, and science must be propagandistic. The true believing writer, artist, or scientist does not create to express himself or to save his soul or to discover the true and the beautiful. His task, as he sees it, is to warn, to advise, to urge, to glorify, and to denounce. 3. Where a mass movement opens vast fields of action, war, colonization, industrialization, there is an additional drain of creative energy. 4. The fanatical state of mind by itself can stifle all forms of creative work. The fanatic's disdain for the present blinds him to the complexity and uniqueness of life, 
The things which stir the creative worker seem to him either trivial or corrupt. The blindness of the fanatic is a source of strength. He sees no obstacles. But it is the cause of intellectual sterility and emotional monotony. The fanatic is also mentally cocky and hence barren of new beginnings. At the root of his cockiness is the conviction that life and the universe conform to a simple formula, his formula. He is thus without the fruitful intervals of groping when the mind is, as it were, in solution, ready for all manner of new reactions, new combinations, and new beginnings. Eric Hoffer, The True Believer everybody, CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man for this new dark age in which we find ourselves increasingly enveloped. Back with another dose of Dangerous History, and this is going to be another guest show, although just so you know, I've got several solo episodes in the works in various stages of completion. So the passages I shared with you from The True Believer before the bumper music dropped were not one continuous passage. They were several excerpts from several different chapters and sections of the book that I, you know, cut and put together in a way that hopefully makes sense and kind of builds a case, Hoffer's case, for what mass movements are really all about and what's really going on there. And a lot of the stuff I just shared with you in those excerpts is stuff that I found particularly penetrating and persuasive, both when looking at history as Hoffer does throughout the book, and also looking at history since he wrote this book, you know, over 70 years ago, and particularly looking around in the U.S. in the last few years. So the bulk of this episode is going to be a conversation about this very interesting book, The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, which, as I've said before in other places, is one of those books I've heard about for many years. I kind of knew the basic arguments of it, at least for the most part, in kind of broad brush strokes, and I had, you know, read and heard various quotes and passages and excerpts from it. But it's only in recent weeks that I actually sat down and read the whole thing, and it's not that long of a book, and it's fairly readable. And I got in touch with my longtime internet buddy, Joshua Perry. And he was kind enough to spare some of his time to have a long and in-depth conversation about this book and its ideas and its relevance to recent history and current events. Now, Josh, if you don't know, used to do a podcast called The Dusty Den, and I collaborated with him on a number of episodes, crossover episodes of our two podcasts several years back. Those of you who are longtime DHP listeners or who have gone through the older episodes have definitely encountered him before. We did a lot of collaboration that involved talking about books and movies and things like that. Like with Alex von Sternberg, he's a guy that has an interesting Venn diagram of overlap with me as far as background and worldview and things like that, where 
we're on the same page with each other enough that we really kind of click very easily. And yet we have just enough differences in terms of our backgrounds and life experiences and those sorts of things that we can often have, at least I think, very interesting conversations. So without any more introductory hoopla here, let me turn it over to myself and Josh discussing the true believer and some of its potential implications for our present and future. Okay, so The True Believer, this this book that is one of those books I've heard about many times. I've I've read and heard, you know, quotes, excerpts, I've seen it referred to in other places. And, you know, I kind of understood the basic overall point and thesis of it, but I had never sat down and read it until pretty recently. Now, this is a book, uh, one of the places, of course, that I heard about it is, is you talked about it, I believe, on one of the episodes of your, your late uh, lamented Dusty Den podcast. Um, but then you mentioned it when I was speaking to you um, for that, that uh, what I ended up making into a bonus episode um, I guess a few months back, uh, you, you brought it up there in reference to some of the insanity of the past year and whatever. And that kind of sparked me to finally uh, bite the bullet, uh, order a copy. It had been on my list for a long time and then sit down and actually read the damn thing uh, cover to cover. Um, so, so yeah. And, and then I thought, you know, it, it'd be great to talk to you uh, as someone who I know, you know, knows the book well and, and, uh, you know, one, one of the people who kind of pointed me towards it. So anyway, thanks very much for, for taking time out of your day today to uh, come on the podcast and talk about this book. Of course. I, lo- I always love talking to you. It's always any excuse uh, I can find to like sort of catch up with you and just participate is always wonderful. And especially to talk about something like uh, the true believer. I mean, I think it's, I've read a few things from Hoffer, uh, but I think it's his best. Uh, obviously, it's his most well-known. So it's always fun. Right. Well, and he's an interesting character. He's very unusual for for an intellectual. I mean, you could almost argue, like, is he even really an intellectual? He hated that title. He did not like being called uh, an academic or an intellectual, even though, you know, he went on to be a professor. Uh, I mean, he was known as, like, the longshoreman's philosopher. I didn't know that he eventually became a professor somewhere yeah um i believe so i can't remember where it was and i think it was an adjunct position okay um and but did, did he have any any college like degree or whatever i think wasn't he basically self-taught yeah yeah i think so and, and the he was like the his parents I mean, he was born in the Bronx, um, I think right before the turn of the century, right? And then his uh, his parents were immigrants, I believe, elite from Germany. Uh, and he even, so apparently his uh, his English was even like laced with like a pretty, pretty decent German accent, like a thick German accent. So he, I think he had that, uh, I think that's one of the things that, that gave him a lot of the perspective that comes through in the book. 
uh, and a lot of his work that he has. Uh, I, he, he, he's very much a man of different parts. Um, you, you know, he's got sort of like the academia, obviously. Uh, I mean, it's a book about philosophy and or social psychology. And then he's a working man, you know, longshoreman. And then uh, also, you know, the child of immigrants uh, born in a city. Uh, so he, there's a lot of different experiences. And uh, it sounded like from what I read about him, it was a lot of different things that he sort of believed in that kind of led him to his own sort of core philosophy. Yeah. So for the the listeners who might not know the slightest thing about who Eric Hoffer was, I mean, he, um, far as I know, basically self-taught, right. An, an autodidact. And as you were saying, spent most of his life working in kind of like manual jobs. I mean, he, what, wasn't he a, like a, gold prospector or something like that uh, at, at an early stage like he had a rant it, it yeah much like one of those authors where before becoming an author you know spent time as a waiter spent time as a train conductor spent time as a welder spent time at, you know um just yeah. this, this list of like more kind of like micro dirty jobs type of jobs for lack of a better term um more kind of like blue collar and and, and manual jobs and then again like you were saying many years as a longshoreman uh i believe it's that's when he wrote true believer was during uh, his yeah. time as a longshoreman so 1943 is when he started it was in san francisco uh where he he became a longshoreman so he had, i mean there's again like you know he sort of had a bi-coastal sort of um uh, experience because he was born in the Bronx, worked all these jobs, like you're saying, which is accurate, and then settled sort of in San Francisco. And he actually did, it was Berkeley. That's where he became a professor. So at very, very much an institution of academia, traditional academia. Um, But again, how, how rare is it that you would have somebody who's a professor at Berkeley that hated being identified as an intellectual? Uh, that's almost noble in its own right. <laughs> yeah, well, in our time, it would be impossible or virtually impossible for someone like that uh, to teach at a university simply because he yeah. doesn't have formal credentials. Like, it doesn't matter how brilliant he is or how many brilliant books and essays he's written. Um, in today's academia, in most cases, it would just be like, you need to have these degrees. You don't have these degrees. So we don't care if you're, you know, one of the greatest intellectuals of, of your generation. Uh, you're yeah. not welcome to, to teach here. Yeah. We've very much become a society of credentialism um, instead of substance i would say and not i don't think the two are necessarily completely disassociated uh certainly there is a degree within gaining certain credentials um of acquiring certain knowledge and skills but i it does we have run off course to where i think like the quest for a piece of paper uh has definitely taken on a whole different symbol than it used to mean uh, i used to symbolize a certain amount of knowledge gained and I think now it's just, you know, a means to an end, a path to success or whatever. Uh, you sort of just do your time. So you're now able to get certain positions instead of doing your time and acquiring these skills and knowledge. So you'll be good at these certain positions. I don't know if that's always been the case or if that's more of a modern offshoot of education. Uh, but I do feel like traditional education uh, was far superior. I don't know. That could be my own own sort of bias but yeah i think one of the things that happened was that 
this trend to where we are now, like it was already in progress during Hoffer's lifetime, this trend of credentialism, but that it, you know, it kind of culminated and amplified um, even more so, I guess, towards what would be the end of his life and, and since he died in the, in the early 80s. But that the, the trend of professionalization goes back to progressivism 1.0. It goes back to like 1880s, 90s, early 1900s, 1910s, where uh, you had the beginning of professionalization of, of uh, intellectual disciplines. So, you know, before the turn of the, of the last century, to be a historian you didn't like go to school for that and get degrees in that. It was just, no, you, you spent time uh, doing research and writing about history and whatever. And like, okay, if you produce enough work that people appreciated and read, like they'd call you a historian. Whereas the, 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 uh, the progressives were the ones who, you know, created these formal institutions like the American historical association, uh, the American yeah. economics association, all these things that were, were intended number one to sort of be the arbiters of intellectual allowable opinion, um, but also to to cartelize that particular profession, right? To say, oh, no, 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 It's not that anybody who's willing to put in a little bit of time learning some stuff can be a historian. No, no, no. This is a special esoteric discipline that only people who spend, you know, this amount of time in these credentialed institutions and acquire these particular degrees and credits uh, are qualified to, you know, write about wars of the past and, and right. history and all these sorts of things, you know. But isn't it interesting that now it's almost there's almost a slingshot effect, I would say, uh, with podcasts, especially being I mean, I know most of what I know about history through reading just because that is kind of I love reading, you know, especially I haven't gotten been able to do as much of it as I would like to lately. But for a lot of people, though, I think listening to like Dan Carlin, listening to History on Fire, um, certainly listening to your podcast, although you are a credentialed, you know, professor, the, that is where people are getting their knowledge of history. Uh, it is not, or, you know, YouTube shows or documentaries or things like this. There, there are a lot more avenues now. I feel, uh, where you can showcase your knowledge. Uh, and you and I, before the show even started, we were talking a little bit about Malice's new book, which is number one on Amazon. And, you know, he self-published that like, it's not, he didn't, I mean, I, the work he's done in the past has given him credentialed him like his, his past work for sure, where he's gotten on these bigger platforms to talk about his book. Um, but that's just something he just knows the material. He just knows what he's talking about. So that's all that's really important. And that's all that really matters to people nowadays. I think it's, it's getting more back to that. Yeah. And some, somebody like him, he's, he's smarter and better at communicating than, you know, 98% of, Oh yeah. He's a brilliant guy. I mean, it's like, I've read, um, dear reader and, uh, the new right. And, you know, I'm a fan, definitely a big fan, but, uh, it's just interesting that I like before the age of podcasting and, and things like that, I don't know that I would have been exposed to a Michael Malice or a, Dan Carlin, you know, I, or, uh, you know, or a prophecy J I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I so I probably wouldn't have. So I would have been very reliant on, uh, just whatever I'm getting from the traditional books and what publishers let out there and, and things like that. One of the things that I've always found super fascinating about, 
And I've talked about this a lot before on my old podcast. And it's something that I find very interesting about groups of people. And we, we do it a lot. And we especially do it with authors and especially dead authors. And I think Eric offers a good example of this is different groups, especially political groups, they try to stake a claim on an author and they want all their work to flow into kind of their ideology. You see it with George Orwell. You see it with Kafka um, in even the terms like they're people try to own Orwellian or own Kafkaesque as like, uh, we're, we're the only group that's allowed to see things in this manner instead of understanding that even George Orwell was like this super complex person who had different beliefs, who was, you know, part socialist, part individualist and all this different thing. Like there's this mad dash to own this individual as, and oh, academia usually gets the first claim, right? Because they're the gatekeepers for, for education. But you see with Eric Hoffer, I mean, I, I think Ronald Reagan <laughs> gave him the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom or something like that. Um, and then at the same time, Hillary Clinton gave the book to all her staffers back when she, during the, you know, her campaign against Trump. So you see both political ends of the spectrum have been very needy to kind of wield his work as a weapon for their causes. And I always thought that the true believer was best, at least for me, when I read it, I almost used it as a tool for self-reflection more than anything. You can certainly apply it to any group you want to, as I'm sure we'll discuss. But I think it's, for me personally, it was at its most effective um, saying like, am I doing any of this stuff? Like, is that, does this define me? Does this group he's talking about? Like, I can kind of see that. And it kind of made me question a lot of things and also at the same time, reaffirm certain beliefs that I had. Um, so it, it's a good exercise to, I think, apply the, the knowledge you gain from the true believer to your own group. If you belong to one or even on the fringes of one. Because you could say certainly a lot of the same things about libertarians and anarchists that you could about progressives or conservatives. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's something I wanted to I wanted to make sure to hit on. Uh, maybe circle back a bit later to that, you know, turning turning the mirror on yourself kind of a deal, um, because that is always very important, right? It's it it's it's easy when when someone is uh, critiquing somebody. And you're only looking at others, right? If somebody's critiquing people involved in mass movements and you're like, oh yeah, all those crazy <laughs> other people in different ideologies than me. And, and you, you don't realize like potentially at least you and or some of the people in the same uh, ideological camp as you might be prone to some of the same negative things that you're so quick to see uh, in everybody else, right? It's classic classic projection right just like how the the hardcore pro-trump people are able to see that the hardcore anti-trump people are a cult right but not exactly. able to see themselves are a cult and vice versa and vice versa right it's always easy to point out the the the, the speck in your neighbor's yeah. eye kind of thing yeah, for right? sure and and the hardest thing is to turn it around on yourself and say okay some of these negative things he's pointing out how many of them apply to me and or to maybe some of the people, maybe not me as an individual, all of them, but maybe some other people in my camp. Um, are they prone to the same? Cause we're all, we're right. all the same species. And I think that's, he leaves his work 
leaves everything very open-ended as far as he's almost inviting you to challenge him challenge the ideas he's not like this i think he actually makes it a point in the true believer to say this is not gospel according to eric hoffer this is a starting point for you to have sort of an internal monologue and debate over your opinion on mass movements and how they form and the kind of people that join them and who's susceptible and who's not. And here's my observations and you can take them or leave them. That seems to be the attitude that it's, it's written with. And I think that's why it's so palatable to anyone who reads it really. Yeah. Well, those are often some of my favorite intellectuals are the types who don't pronounce with like, you know, absolute, uh, scripture, like certainty of like, boom, this is absolutely what thing like Marx or somebody like that, or any, any kind of like a dark doctrinaire yeah. Marxist uh, would be an example where it's like, no, 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 we already have the answers to everything definitively worked out. We've got truth with a capital T. This is the gospel from Mount Sinai and uh, that's it. Whereas somebody like Hoffer and a lot of other favorite intellectuals of mine often are the ones who are the most uh, kind of a little bit ambiguous and ambivalent and a little bit more um, what's the word I'm looking for a little more provisional yeah. with their claims. They're, they're more like, Hey, this is kind of what I'm seeing here. Discuss, you know, versus saying, no, this is it period. This is, this is exactly. I think there's also an understanding amongst individuals like that, that they seem to have of the weight of an absolute claim. And uh, I, I try to be like that as well. Like I don't, I try to avoid absolutes when I can, just because you are putting yourself out there and you're, <laughs> the truth isn't always so black and white. Uh, it, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different colors that go into making the painting, you know? So to say, Oh, oh this is like you say, we have it all figured out soup to nuts. Um, and this is how it should work. Um, the weight of that is I think for the smarter intellectuals, not worth it. You know, I think they, they look at that and say, look, I'm going to be wrong about something. So, you know, I might as well put that out there that, Hey, this is what I think, you know, this is, this is what I've kind of worked out. Uh, but, you know, call me out on it, debate me on it, or um, at least offer me a different opinion and we will examine that together. And that sort of seems to be the spirit of the book of like, let's work this out. Here's where we're starting from. Uh, But I do think he nails a lot of it. There's a few points that I disagree with him on uh, when I was reading it, but the spirit of the book I, I like and the majority of it, I definitely feel like it was speaking to me it's something i've i think when we had talked about you reading it before you had said something about like you know a lot of the things that were written in there were, were things you had felt a long time uh, or, or feelings or views of the world that you had had that he just sort of articulated really well uh and that's how i feel too right. like it's like oh yeah this guy this guy gets it <laughs> yeah yeah those are often the books that resonate the the strongest right are those that clearly crystallize and articulate some things that you you've been like fuzzily grappling towards and you know kind of working out in a more convoluted and less streamlined and and cutting sort of a way but when someone has you know and in this case they've done it 
seven yeah. years ago or whatever. Um, so somebody has already kind of figured out what you're grappling with and put it into a very clean, articulate sort of a way. You're like, yes, you know, it's the same experience that you have often when um, when a comedian makes you laugh by saying the things that most yeah. of us think but never say. Right. That's it's a good, that's a thing. great You're analogy. Like, yeah, he's saying what I always, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of times, like those are the jokes that just kill you, you know, when, when you're like, I thought I was the yeah. only person that thought that, you know, I think it's also a, a, the same reaction. And ta- I talked to my friend Dave about this because this is the way he described his reaction when he, when he was younger and he first read Ayn Rand, when he first read Atlas Shrugged, um, which isn't my favorite of hers, but I still, I get it. Um, like there is that sense he described it as a sense of relief when he finished it. Like, okay, there's, even though I don't buy it all, like somebody out there feels, sees what I'm seeing, you know, like I thought I was alone kind of thing in the way that I, that, that I felt about individualism and things like this. Um, and I think that the way that she writes, uh, which is very different than Hoffer, of course, cause she is an absolutist. Uh, but, it's very it, it does give you a clear crisp version of her of her of her sense of reality and for a lot of people who i think are struggling at that age when they're first introduced or come across rand i think it is relieving to hear a different opinion and maybe something that speaks to self-realization of that age or whatever it is um now a lot of people even discover rand later in life you know in adulthood and, and have that same thing because it's just different it's different than a lot of stuff people are typically exposed to in the literary world, um, unless you're, you know, into like fiction-based philosophy. <laughs> but that's rare. Yeah. So let's uh, let's kind of, I guess, start in in sort of broad brushstrokes, and and then we can kind of zoom in on particular uh, points as we go along, because the the book kind of has its its main kind of central thesis, but then it also has various kind of like sub sub arguments and things like this about particular aspects and whatever. But so he's looking at mass movements and he, he says that mass movements, regardless of whether they're primarily uh, religious in nature or based on like a a secular political ideology, like, like communism or, or fascism or whatever, or whether they're based on more kind of like a, just a purely nationalist focused um, belief system. In, in a way they have so many common characteristics that as I think he says explicitly, they're essentially interchangeable despite their difference on particulars, they're interchangeable in kind of like how they work and what makes them tick and, and how they operate and how they play out over time. And so seems like the main thing he's trying to get at is how and why do people get swept up in mass movements as, as, as the title of the book says, true believers. So he, he talks a bit about what happens before the fanatical phase of a mass movement and what happens after like to, to kind of close it down. But, but the bulk of the book is dealing with what he would call the active or fanatical right. phase of a mass movement, which is the one where the true believer really comes to the fore and, you know, where these movements often can go the most dark. Although he's, he's somewhat ambivalent. He kind of says like mass movements are not necessarily sure. good or bad. They can be 
uh, good or bad. And even the ones that are good, he kind of says, have have bad aspects to them, uh, potentially, even though in the long run, they might they might uh, do more good in, in historical kind of big picture terms. So anyway. He even breaks it up too, also from that for, to kind of like, what are the requirements of a mass movement? Like what is, what is the fertilizer for it? And then, and then later in the book, I think he breaks down to like, who is this going to be comprised of? So it's sort of like the, the movement itself and then the potential converts, I would say he would phrases it. I think that's how he phrases it. Yeah. And he, and he does it sort of out of order where, where for kind of much of the beginning to, I don't know, a little bit past halfway of the book, he's mostly just talking about that true believer Mm -hmm. fanatical phase of things. And then later in the book is when he like first steps back and talks about what comes before a mass movement to make it kind of prepare the way for it um, and create fertile ground for it. And then he, then, then after that, he then jumps to kind of like how these things end, you know, how they, they sort of like, become the new establishment i guess sort of become the new order that's the he doesn't go by it from my view he really if i have one criticism is that he does he didn't do enough there uh of what kind of the, the after effects and what happens after i thought that was a little too sparse yeah in, in general I, I thought the book ends kind of abruptly um, that that would be one of my kind of big picture criticisms is that it ends sort of abruptly. I, I was a little bit, I don't know. I was, I was looking for a more, more uh, a satisfying conclusion in a way, although maybe that's what he was, he was shooting for was something that's a bit yeah. ambivalent. And so um, how would you describe his basic thesis as far as like, who is drawn to mass movements? Who, who, who becomes these true believers and like what's going on? Um, I think the cause is, I mean, the cause is just a matter of circumstance. So it's just a useful means to an end. I think the person or group that is going to capitalize on a mass movement is, is typically the opportunist. So I don't really think the why, um, the why could be anything for the true believer really, uh, because he lists, like several subcategories of, of who they are, um, you know, from dissidents to the board to um, the very well off. And they all have their different reasons for substituting in this movement to whatever's missing in their life or whatever they think they could help their life. But the requirements I think are what I find the most interesting. And I think he really breaks it down to two major requirements that you have to have, which is a wild hope, and a hatred about some part of the present. Um, you need, that's what the, the leader, quote unquote, or the, uh, the opportunist in a situation is going to need, whether the motives are bad or good or unintentionally bad or good or purposefully bad or good, I mean, it doesn't matter. Whoever's capitalizing on, on the true believers, um, they need to instill a sense of wild hope and they also need to instill a sense of hatred of the present. And you see this, I, you can look at like the last three presidential campaigns. And I think it's even the, down to the slogans like hope and change um, and, uh, you know, make America great again. And then um, now with this, just like, you know, the sort of the Trump derangement syndrome kind of rabidness of uh, the Biden movement. I think they all capitalize on a wild promises 
this is what I'm going to, I'm going to change everything for you. I'm, I'm the guy. Uh, and then they all also operate under, you have to hate what's currently going on uh, because we're going to change it. You know, and you're going to be, you're going to be in control now. You're going to be the one It's going to change your life. I'm going to change everything. When in reality, over the course of the last 12 years, our lives have probably changed very little depending on who sits in the chair. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think, I mean, that's a little bit of a sidetrack, but I, I think that that's a good way of looking at it at, through contemporary examples. I think it it's a promise of hope and a promise of, it's someone speaking to the true believer. They can find whatever avenue to fill this void in their life that's necessary they just need somebody to to tell them, right? Hey, I'm going to promise you this. This is going to change your life. Uh, and you're a force for good. If you follow me, you're a good person. And uh, and this and if you don't, you're evil. And if you don't, you're bad. And right now is bad, but we're going to get to good. So I think you could look at some, like the Bolsheviks are a good example of that exact sentiment. If you historically. Yeah, I think where the book makes its most um, uh, original sort of insights is particularly where, and, and this comprises a fair chunk of the early to middle part of the book, where he's really digging into the individual psychology of the people who are most likely to be recruited as rank and file, but yeah. true believing rank and file of a mass movement when it's in the more early active fanatical phase. So, you know, people who get recruited into, in some cases, literal cults or who get recruited into what, what we might think of as political cults and things like this. Um, those, those people though, like the rank and file, what's really going on there. And, and he kind of, not kind of, he really does. He downplays the, the specific content yeah, it's not important. I don't think to him. the movement is built around. It's yeah, it's I mean, it has to check a few boxes in order to appeal to the right kinds of people. But but like the specific details, you know, whether it's about race or nationalism or religion or whatever is not terribly important at the end of the day to to how much it is appealing or not appealing to the to the potential true believers. But the I, I think where he really um, where he, he really probably dug new ground when he first wrote this. And and I don't think a lot of other books have since have really dug into this the way he did is in this whole concept of trying to understand the individual psychology of the individual rank and file, uh, a true believing member of, yeah. of a mass movement. And the argument that ultimately what's really going on is that this is projection and displacement of people who are deeply unsatisfied with their lives and 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 that it ultimately they're they want to blame all of their shortcomings and inadequacies and dissatisfactions most of which probably are on their own head basically uh, blame it though on the outside world right and say oh i would be successful and respected and blah 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 if only society and and uh, the system i live under and whatever if only all that was different that's the reason i'm frustrated and i'm i'm kind of a loser and i'm not living up to my my potential it's not because there's something just inherently 
wrong or defective with me. It's everybody else out there, right? It's, it's society. It's the system. It's the other um, always. Yeah. And, and so that, that I think is probably his, his, his most, his most valuable insight and contribution more than anything else is, is that point, which in, in some ways kind of dovetails with, with one of the, the central Jordan Peterson claims, right? The, the whole idea of don't critique society and try and fix the world if you haven't even fixed right. your own immediate surroundings and your immediate personal life and affairs, right? The whole idea of like, why should I listen to your opinion about how to fix a nation's economy if you can't even yeah. uh, fix your uh, own Exactly. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's definitely one of the groups that he talks about. Uh, and we've all like sat next to that person at the bar or whatever that like, or have that one friend who at the party, like, it's all about the woe was me um, kind of thing. It's like, look, we've all got trials and tribulations and yeah, I'll sit here and <laughs> listen to you, but, and I'll be sympathetic and be a friend, but those do typically tend to be the types that gravitate towards or one of the types that gravitate towards these certain things. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's just a matter of like accident of, of circumstance, whether they get recruited in today's context, whether they end up uh, getting recruited into the, the army of Wokies or whether they end up getting recruited into the, you know, the alt, some alt right. Yeah. Nut group or whatever. Fills a void, I guess. Um, it almost is just like it. Yeah. It's just an accident of like, you know, which, which YouTube videos they happen to watch, which, which books they happen to read, which particular rabbit holes ensnared them. It like could just as easily get recruited into Antifa as into, you know, some, some white. And you see it now, especially, I mean, you were talking a little bit before about it with, um, you know, you said whether it's a, a political or religious cult or ideology. And I, I think those lines are like very blurred now. Um, maybe more so than, any time in the past uh, that I can, you know, and at least in con- contemporary history, uh, I just can't think of a time where I would look at the political climate and it's very, very religious in nature, even with the language. And, you know, uh, Brian Kaplan in his book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, he gets at this a lot, which is um, that people don't vote on logic and reason and what will benefit them the most even they do that's not what people vote on they vote on their their hopes and dreams they vote on what they're angry about you know we're ruining the planet for my children and i'm not going to stand for it and i'm mad about it and i'm going to go vote and this is who the commercial told me to vote for in that circumstance yeah yeah voting is is almost more about yeah, yeah, absolutely. And virtue signaling and expressing because it costs you nothing. It's, it's it's there's no cost associated right. with it. Um, to and the gratification received is uh, wonderful. You know, it can give your, your social statuses. Uh, you you know, put your picture on Facebook, and you know you can wear your uh, donkey or your elephant and I voted or whatever. And uh, you know, you're, you're a hero to your group uh, and it, it just things like that. You know, it's uh, you see it with like the vaccinations, I guess, like people posting their vaccination photos and even that is politicized, right? Uh, even though that's a personal medical decision, it's like people use it as a, as yeah, a virtue signal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a sign of tribal membership, whether you're, if you're, if you're pro or anti, you know, if you, if you got vaccinated, you're, you're signaling your virtue and affiliation with this group. If you're not, you're signaling it. With and that's the all group. it is. To and me. rather than, yeah, rather than saying, you know, each individual has to make their own calculation as to what to do about this question. It's no, yeah. no, it's a tribal identity thing. And, and it, it really is creepy 
I'll, I'll have to say, and I'm not across the board uh, an anti-vaxxer or anything like that, but it really has creeped me out the degree to which the the kind of you know progressive type people have turned as they turned wearing a mask into like wearing a yarmulke yeah. or a burqa. They also have turned getting vaccinated into yeah, it's a, baptism. a religious sacrament. You're born again, man. You're yeah, born exactly. again. It's, you it's, can it's, go back to life yeah, again. Yeah. We can get, we can have our party again. We can get together and be together again because we are born again. man. It is baptism. It is. It's their confirmation. <laughs> it's their, yeah, it's, it's the whole thing. It's the confirmation. It's the bar mitzvah. It's, it's this weird, creepy, rather than just like, Hey, someone made a, a calculated decision about their medical questions or whatever it turns into this weird religious progressives are always in search of they're always in search of the next revelations um they're always trying to defeat the end of the world and the end of the world is always right around the corner uh whether we're going to run out of food in the 70s or the earth is going to freeze in the early 80s to um global warming then to climate change then to uh weather hysteria then to killer bees whatever it is <laughs> there's there's always a doomsday in the progressive world view and it's always very 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 close uh to where i think with the conservative world view if you want to apply these lessons to that group um equally um it's all it always focuses more around a sort of what a dilapidated nationalism, sort of like a collapsing of their state or of their country or of their values. Uh, and I think that's the call to urgency that conservatives sort of say, like, look, if we don't change this now, all these values are going to be gone forever. And we're going to be this crazy, you know, it's just going to be a free for all. And uh, there will be no order and there will be no law. And um, so it's sort of, I th- there is hysteria on, on, both ends of the political spectrum and in the middle. And if there's one word I would use, I think to describe the current state of the union and probably the world, which he uses this word a lot in his book. Um, it is hysterical. That's how I would describe the current state of affairs. And that is fertile ground for radical movements, according to him. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things he raises as, you know, fertile ground for mass movements that, when he was writing in, I guess, the late 40s, writing this book, didn't apply to the United States because the United States in the late 40s, early 50s was in the post-war high. The economy was doing well. There was tons of employment. There was a lot of, of real material progress happening. It's the post-World War II, you know, little little golden age that lasted for maybe like two decades until Vietnam and a few other things uh, uh, kind of ended it. But it's interesting that, you know, he's writing at a time when some of these things he's pointing out don't really apply that much to the U.S. Yeah. And then you could argue today, 70 years later, like they really do. Um, he, he argues that that um, large and heter- heterogeneous societies are more prone to mass movements than are small and more homogenous and cohesive societies, which that right off the bat, the U.S. then is more prone potentially than than, I don't know, Switzerland or, or Norway or something. Um, but then some of the other stuff he talks about wouldn't have applied to the U.S. back then, but would today. Like, for example, you know, there's, there's probably a, a higher percentage of people who who subjectively feel uh, frustrated and and uh, disenfranchised. Oh, absolutely. And opportunities and sometimes with real justification, to be fair. 
but you know whether whether those grievances are are justified or not either way they can make yeah and i don't i'm not when i make fun of like for instance when i'm making fun of progressives for thinking the end of the world is tomorrow or when i'm making fun of conservatives for thinking that like there's not going to be a united states of america tomorrow um and it's going to be everybody's going to be you know from a different place and stuff like this uh i'm not saying that none of those issues that they're fighting for are sound like i'm not saying i don't believe in any of that stuff or that certain aspects of them are actually you know very real you know threats or anything like that certainly you know i think as me you've talked about before i definitely believe in the science of things maybe not the science i don't i don't know how big of a fan i am of the science but i'm definitely a fan of science and figuring things out you put that beautifully one day when we were talking and i thought that was hilarious that was exactly how i felt yeah yeah science is a method <laughs> of using controlled experiments to test hypotheses in order to gradually progress toward closer and closer towards the truth yeah it's just it's the, the oracle science you know it's the or, it's like uh, it's the bird signs you look at in ancient rome to determine if you're going to win the battle or not um you know it's you know we can just call it whatever we want to call it to uh make ourselves feel <laughs> more more modern i guess and but it's the same thing Hey, 600 years ago, the science wanted to burn you at the stake if you said the earth went around the sun. <laughs> That's so true. But we've got and, it figured out now. Ago, now we know. Now now's different than any time ever before in history. We have it all figured out, my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just like, you know, one year ago, if you said, I think COVID might have come from a lab, you were an insane xenophobic conspiracy theorist who hates science. Yeah. Now it's a legitimate, respectable hypothesis that the science is willing to at least say is possible. Yeah, it's crazy how quick um, things change. Like even if something wasn't okay yesterday, but it's okay today because the science says so. And it's just so funny that like we it's sort of we've got like it's like the office of official science or like uh, the czar of science. <laughs> like we have the I mean, I don't know how um, I guess we're sort of getting sidetracked from the book, but it is it is relative because um, you see that this is the most present in our current, you know, 2021 United States and probably the world uh, that people are looking to have belong to this movement and they want to symbolize and they want to project like, this is what I believe because I'm afraid to be associated with the other group that doesn't believe that believe this. In fact, somebody showed me a Twitter post and it was somebody who was saying, I really want to take my mask off but I'm afraid to, because somebody might think I'm a Republican or something like that. (laughs) There was a post and I, I shat on it a bit on Twitter. Um, There there were several of these, but the one that I, that I saw that was going around was actually from uh, David Hogg, the kid from Parkland who, you know, became a, an anti-gun grandstander. Oh yeah. 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 And and now, now he's just like a generic progressive, you know, big mouth. Yeah. And yeah, he did a, he did a post along uh, a Twitter post along the lines of, um, even though I'm vaccinated and the science has said I don't need to wear a mask, I might keep my mask on just so people don't think I'm a Republican by accident. He said something like that. Yeah. 
And then somebody else retweeted it. I saw the retweet or it, may, it might not have been that individual, but they were like, imagine this person actually thinks they would have stood up against um, antebellum slavery or, uh, you know, the persecution of Jews in Germany. Like, you know, they actually believe they would have done that when they're really just afraid to go against the official narrative. And those were the official narratives of the time. It, it's like all the all the memes we've seen. Uh, in different ways over the Trump years that said man has opinions that align with all of corporate America, the military industrial complex, blah, 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 wall street, et cetera. And thinks he's part of the resistance. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But that's, I mean, that is the appeal that Hoffer even talks about in his book, uh, which is he talks about the make-believe and how people, the make-believe, especially to the board, um, is a powerful and often it's a powerful magnet uh, for those people. And it often makes the most zealous of the converts to whatever movement it is. And you can see the people who got to, you know, that live in their uh, middle upper class home who go around the jog for their block and they, you know, around their block and they get to come home and they get to play resistance warrior on their laptop on Twitter Um and they believe, you know, wholeheartedly that they are part of this resistance force and that they are doing a good thing. And they're, you know, I guess, tweeting their way into heaven because they are, you know, they're they're like saying, look, I am good. You know, I pl- please believe me, everyone, please look at me, please. I'm good. I promise I'm good. I promise I'm good. And no matter what I'm wrong about. You know, I am. I promise you, my intentions are good, and this is going to whatever rewards are waiting in 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 the afterlife. Maybe I, you know, I don't have to to stake a claim anywhere or have any courage anywhere else. All I have to do is um, be part of this social zeitgeist of good against evil, however ambiguous that is, and uh, that absolves me. You know, from and it can even absolve me from my success. And I think this is where you see a lot of like celebrity types and people who are well-to-do. And I know a few of these type of people who it's almost like they're trying to, in a way, buy their way into the graciousness of society. They feel this guilt for being successful or for having things. Uh, and their, their way of dealing with it is to saying like, well, now that I, I played my game and had fun, I'm taking my ball and going home. Um, it's time for everybody to give up everything, you know, because, because I feel guilty, you know, so I'm going to join this movement or or advocate for this or whatever. So, yeah, I think it's, it's guilt. And then also as he alludes to, although he doesn't use this term and I don't think the term was around yet, but essentially some of those people who at least superficially might look to be somewhat successful, but who nonetheless get drawn into mass movements that part of it's some form of guilt. And then also some form of imposter syndrome, Yes, which he kind of alludes to that without using that exact term. Cause like I said, I don't think it, that was really around yet as a, as a term, but you know, I can imagine some, some people, particularly if they found some degree of like fame and success pretty easily through kind of, I'm luck, on your side. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine you'd, you'd have not only guilt over that, but you'd also have imposter syndrome, right? Whereas someone who spent like decades honing a craft to become, you know, some kind of somewhat famous, successful person, probably is more of the self-satisfied 
individual who's less prone to this, but someone who, you know, maybe just out of a combination of like luck and good looks, maybe became a famous actor, but really isn't all that great at it and really didn't put in a lot of work to get there um, might be much more prone to getting wrapped up. And and you notice like a lot of the celebrities who are the most annoying as far as like spouting off stupid uh, uh, woke and establishment opinions or whatever, they're often the ones you look at and you're like, you're like a third rate actor that, you know, um, maybe had like one lucky role or whatever. And and no one really cares. He hits that hard. Uh, He refers to it as like the, he talks about as the creative individual who is either like no longer creative or their abject failures at their creativity um, and how it is the, an opportunity for them to sort of like suckle at the teat of uh, <laughs> of that lifestyle and that group. And I think you specifically see it with the the, the like the kind of kids who are thrust into the atmosphere, like the Greta Thumbergs, and like uh, you brought up the, the yeah, yeah, David Hawk. Like they're really subject to it because they also have all the pressures of adolescence and, you know, power and acceptance and all those, all those, I almost feel sorry for them um, because they're kind of shoved into this spotlight and expected all these expectations are put onto them. And now they're just going to play to the expectations one way or the other. Uh, you, you do tend to see this used more in progressive circles than than other circles i don't know why that is that could be my own bias just seeing it there more um but but, um i do you do seem to like uh like what about the children um and like let's listen to the children and it's like well no i actually want to listen to adults when it comes to my policy yeah let's listen to the children although let's listen to carefully cherry-picked children who are going to say exactly what we want them to say i feel bad for them it's i do yeah, well, they're they're kind of like like child actors, right? Where, you know, there, there's no way when you're a child or an adolescent, and your your brain is still so much developing and so malleable and all that. There's no way that if you suddenly become famous or whatever, that that's not going to be way more of a curse than a blessing. I mean, just look at how many child actors, even the ones that didn't like get molested or whatever. Um, look how many child actors ended up like just totally screwed up eight yeah, weeks from Sunday yeah. and, weird, and like weird lifestyle of, of substance abuses. And yeah. Um, how many of them end up, you know, committing suicide or becoming drug addicts or whatever versus the number of, of uh, child actors that actually become like healthy, well-adjusted, normal adults, which a few do, but, but that's the rare, the rare exception. There was that, there was some kind of reality show years ago that had a bunch of child actors on it. I can't remember the details. It, I, I want, it was like five, 10 years ago. They had, um, you know, I think they had Corey Feldman and they had the kid from a Christmas story and they had a few other things. And it was like a reality show where they were like hanging out and talking about how screwed up their childhoods were or something like that. It was interesting. Yeah. It was interesting. It's famous. Uh, weird, man. Yeah, definitely. Like I, and it's, and he talks about that. He's like, there's, there's this need for people to be connected to, um, the famous and then the, the respectable and that sort of community. And he hits on them pretty hard uh, and that sort of ideology and Twitter and social media has made it. I mean, people really feel like they are connected to a lot of these individuals. Um, so I think you see there for mass movements to gain steam. It's, it, there, it's really become quite the locomotive social media has for 
movement of these ideas because before, you know, it was, you know, you had to be face to face or you had to read something or you had, I mean, now it's just so instant uh, that movements can come and go quickly, but um, I don't know. I, I wonder what he would think about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One, one thing that I think is just sort of like um, maybe a little bit of a blind spot in the book is any, and, and maybe I'm, Maybe I, I missed it. Maybe there was a brief reference to it somewhere or something. But one, one thing I think is a little bit of a hole in his analysis is the role of technology itself in the ability of mass movements to pop up and to grow and to be cohesive. Because, you know, if you look back at the, the coming of the modern printing press to Europe, that kicked off all the conflicts of the Reformation. And and that included all kinds of crazy mass movements and things. And then you look at, you know, the 20th century, you've got all these new communications technologies, everything from, from uh, film to radio and eventually television, mass produced newspapers, relatively widespread basic literacy. Like these are all nuts and bolts technology things that play a role in, in increasing the, the, frequency and intensity i think of mass movements and i think you could you could put the internet and social media as just the latest you know next quantum step in technologies that it's not that the technologies automatically must produce mass movements but that they are very unintentionally are very capable of facilitating it's a great carrier for the idea um and that's all it like. So when he's talking about the the types of people, and he's talking about individuals who have a void to fill, or or the dissidents, one of the things that he he does talk about, and it, I found this super interesting actually. Was, and this this will lead into an area where I disagree with him, but I don't disagree on this actual point. It's just something I had never thought about. He talked about how the super dissident <laughs> are unaffected typically by the mass movements because they're so concerned with the, the uh, what's right in front of them survival. Basically, like if you are a first generation immigrant, you can't even speak the language. You uh, you're really, you're a day laborer or something like that. Um, You're kind of unaffected by any of these movements because you're so concerned with the principle of your hierarchy of needs. You're worried about, Maybe they'll, maybe you have time to worry about what your child's life's going to be like if you have children. But other than that, you're trying to get enough food to eat or you're trying to get enough money to eat and you're trying to get enough money to put a roof over your head. And you can't be concerned with, you know, what the people in the nice neighborhood around the corner are fighting for on the internet. You can't like, you're just, you're just trying to make it. And I thought that was interesting that that concern with the principle and a concern with the immediate is an insulating factor when it comes to mass movements. Yeah, yeah. He says that um, true believers are not often going to be recruited from the abjectly poor, right? For the for the reasons you're saying that, like if you're if you're just trying to, uh, as a as a brilliant man once said, put food on your family, <laughs> uh, then you know you're you're not you're not going to have time for that. And you're not going to have the mental bandwidth for it. Whereas he says the the people who are the most potentially susceptible to becoming true believers in a mass movement are the newly poor. Like those who came from a not abjectly poor background, but have seen 
um, some combination of like a decline in their living standards and opportunities and or frustrated ambitions. And what, what made me. Th- that's very Trump. That's a very that's a very, I think, like Trump I, movement I think it absolutely point of view. Is, but I also think it, it just as easily explains the SJW woke Antifa crowd, too, because how many of them are from a middle or even upper middle class or affluent background? Right. And went to sure fancy college, but then ended up in a bunch of debt. Like this is the classic millennial curse, right? They went to college, even assuming they completed a degree successfully, they came out with a ton of debt into a market where degree inflation has made their degree worthless. Even if it's in a somewhat normal topic, right. Let alone if their degree is in like 18th century women's studies or whatever. Um, but even if it's in like a kind of a, a, a more normal uh, subject matter, still degree inflation means that, you know, even if you've got a, a degree in a more uh, respected subject, you're going to have a hard time getting a decent job. Yeah, and so, cares? you know, how many of these people end up yeah. at best being an adjunct at a crummy college and, and at worst, you know, they're baristas at Starbucks or they're stocking the shelves at Target or whatever. And those are the people he's talking about. Right. And this is why I think. If you look at who's really grabbed onto the woke ideology whole hog, it's not actual like poor minority people from from the ghetto. They're, they're no, not buying not, most of it. Not. I mean, they're on board with some aspects of it, I'm sure, like, you know, some maybe some aspects of police reform or whatever. But as far as the more like out there, almost like neo Maoist craziness of, of official BLM or whatever, those are not working class black people's ideas at all it's it's mostly um people of whatever race who are from a fairly affluent background at least originally who who uh, most of whom are, are college educated many of whom have graduate degrees um and so they fit into this this category hoffer's talking about of kind of the newly poor who who can remember being better you know economically and all that and also who who feel like they were entitled to more opportunities and and were denied them by by circumstances outside their control. And so they're, you know, depending on where you come from in terms of culture and geography, an individual in that category might be very seduced by by the woke SJW stuff or just as strongly um, seduced by the MAGA stuff. Right. Um, it, it just sort of depends on the particulars of your circumstance, geographically, socioeconomically, whatever. But, you know, whether it's the unemployed or underemployed Rust Belt blue collar guy. Right. But who can who can talk to his dad and have his dad say, like, oh, yeah, back, you know, 40 years ago, you could with a high school diploma, get a good job at the steel mill and live a good, solid middle class life on one income. And now it's gone, you know, Um, and, and it's the same deal with the person from a more, you know, urban affluent background who who went to college and was told don't worry you go to college and you get a great job and you're solid middle class no problem and now uh is working part-time as a barista right either way it's somebody who at least from their subjective perspective is newly poor and and uh was unjustly denied opportunities yes they don't deserve to be yeah, so, <laughs> so I, I wanna, there's a, yeah. i've got a few different passages um bookmarked to share Sure. Um, you know, to 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 spark us uh, uh, talking, and also for the listeners, especially those who haven't read this book, to kind of get a sense of of what he's saying and how he's saying it. So, um, this is a, a passage where he's talking a lot about the way that frustrated individuals who 
really more of their problems are probably due to their own shortcomings, but then displace it all outside themselves and then ultimately can look for, can look for um, solace in a mass movement. He writes, faith in a holy cause is to a considerable extent a substitute for the loss of faith in ourselves. The less justified a man is in claiming excellence for his own self, the more ready he is to claim all excellence for his nation, his religion, his race, or his holy cause. A man is likely to mind his own business when it is worth minding. When it is not, he takes his mind off his own meaningless affairs by minding other people's business. This minding of other people's business expresses itself in gossip, snooping and meddling, and also in feverish interest in communal, national, and racial affairs. In running away from ourselves, we either fall on our neighbor's shoulder or fly at his throat. This burning, the burning conviction that we have a holy duty toward others is often a way of attaching our drowning selves to a passing raft. Okay. And so it's a, it's a great way to distract from your own shortcomings and to blame your problems on things outside yourself. And also later on, he says explicitly that one of the things that people are getting by joining a mass movement is they're getting a relief from responsibility and a relief from freedom. And of course, freedom and responsibility properly understood, I think you would agree with this, are kind of two sides of of a coin. Um, And so he's saying that the people who are drawn to mass movements, they don't want freedom. Like they're actively trying to escape the possibility of freedom and the possibility of all the responsibility that goes along with freedom. And, And the scariness of if you're genuinely free, ultimately success or failure comes down more than anything else to you. There's ownership. You can't, yeah, you can't blame anyone else for any of your problems, or at least not for not for most of the big ones. Yeah, and I mean, I think that if you really want to follow down a rabbit hole, that it could speak to one particular group's obsession with the abolition of ownership in general. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's the need for savior as well, and I think that there's a lot of people who could put it more eloquently than I do, and. I know this is an area where we differ a bit and I don't know how much we need to get into it, but there, it, when you there for me, like I'm kind of a spiritual person, right? I have, um, I definitely not a traditional, uh, religious belief, but, but I've definitely, I would identify myself as a Christian without, without any kind of tying it to any specific type of Christianity or anything like that. Uh, probably not the kind of Christian that TV would project that the, this is, this is what Christians are or whatever. But um, nevertheless, I would say that, you know, I have faith there, uh, religious faith. And I think what can happen sometimes is when society has decided that faith is no longer something that's valuable there's an urge to fill that void. I think that's baked into human nature is that I need to believe in something and without a religious outlet for that, I think, and I'm not speaking for everyone. Uh, I'm just speaking. I, I would say this is definitely the case for some people. I think politics can become that religion or a political group or uh you know, if you've got your vaccination card, that can become that can become part of you know your religious rights, uh, and it does have a very religious aspect of it. Even down, you call it all out all the time as the civil religion. Now I know we have different 
uh, religious beliefs, but that in no way. So that's not me saying, oh, if you're an atheist, like you're susceptible to uh, being part of a mass movement more so than a religious person. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. In fact, I would probably classify most of the people that I talk to as atheists or agnostics at best. So it's, you know, I'm probably the oddball in that uh, circle of, of friends that I have and people that I communicate with about this kind of stuff. So it's not a diss on on people who who aren't uh, members of a particular faith whatsoever. Um, but I do find it interesting that most of the people that I know who are super into one of these political cults do have an absence of other kind of faith and or interests in their life. They seem to have nothing else. Yeah, yeah. So so you're you're sort of making the kind of the god-shaped hole argument that, right that various people have made right that if you if you don't have something to fill that particular you know psychological need and yearning then you'll fill it with something else that might end up being more i don't know dangerous or or destructive yeah, or, I, I think it can happen i don't think it's uh, uh necessarily the, going to happen uh, I just know too many people. I have too much. I have too much anecdotal evidence that says um, I know plenty of very, very grounded atheists who are resistant to this kind of thing, um, to mass movements. Maybe even more so than myself. So I don't think that um, not. I don't. I would say I don't think being an atheist or not having a religious preference um, makes you necessarily susceptible to mass movements. But I do think for a lot of people, it can be a factor, especially if you don't recognize that that is part of the human experience that, and kind of catch yourself, you know, like say, I need something to believe in. So I'm going to believe in Donald Trump or I'm going to believe in Joe Biden. Like <laughs> I just, I see that. Like, I mean, I see people believe in these individuals like they would believe in a, in a deity or a savior. And I, I I don't know if that's part of what's going on there, but I definitely think it's something to look at. Yeah, I mean, my own thinking on on this question is, you know, coming at it from from a different perspective than you, but kind of ending up in the same place where I've I've become more amenable to the idea that not everybody needs something to sort of be their 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 god, so to speak, but that a lot of people do. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. so the, the, the tricky part is if you tell everybody you, you, you know, shouldn't have religion or whatever, some people are going to be okay and still be able to, to live a good and moral life and, and be a decent person without having to latch onto a substitute, but that some significant percentage of people are going to, whether they consciously realize it, realize they're doing it or not, are going to be grasping for a substitute and that substitute can come in a lot of different forms sometimes as halfer says sometimes mass movements are themselves explicitly religious right but they're always yeah. they're always kind of quasi religious even when they're not explicitly so no yeah uh there's i forget what show it was i was listening to of yours i was re-listening to it uh and it was about a religious rebellion um i man i can't remember I'm trying to remember the time period, uh, but it was this really crazy cult like movement. And I just think it's really comparable to kind of what you see today. Uh, 
Oh, I can't hear you. Oh, there you are. Oh, sorry. When it came back on, it automatically muted my mic. I'm looking. My I have a really strong signal for whatever that's worth. I'm not. I'm not even sure if if it was my internet that crapped out or yours. <laughs> yeah, I I did not see that. Yeah, I, mean, so. I think it might have been mine. Been I got that. a little thing pop up that that said your connection is unstable. So I'm I'm guessing that meant my internet was uh, okay. All right. Yeah, and I'm and I'm going in. You know, uh, hardwired with an Ethernet cable, whatever. But you know, if the Oh, well, it seems to be working, working okay there. So, um, all right. Remember where we were exactly or. Yeah. Um, we were just sort of discussing, um, the implications of religion and, or lack thereof and how susceptible one might be to a mass movement and what Hoffer would say about it. And the, the point that I was trying to make, um, was that you can see, see parallels i think even in the parable right like uh if you look at progressivism for example and i already sort of touched on this there's all there's a revelations right you know there's the day of reckoning is coming and you need to tune in to rachel maddow every night to uh find out who the sinners and saints are and what you need to do to be absolved of your sin um before revelations gets here and you need to make sure you're on you know uh the side of your on the side of whatever <laughs> whatever it is uh to be this good person i think i think michael malice actually said that i might be stealing that from him i can't remember where i heard it but he said that these people uh and he might have been referring to uh to either her or um some conservative host like a Sean Hannity or something like that and saying like they're literal, they are literal televangelists. Uh, and that's sort of how I see it um, for sure that they are, they're preaching to a congregation much less than they are reporting some sort of statistical analysis on things. I had a, a very interesting conversation literally just yesterday for um, an episode that'll come out a little bit before this one will. And I was speaking to uh, Alex von Sternberg of the History Impossible podcast, and I was yeah, talking yeah. to him about an article he wrote months back um, that was published in Aereo Online. And uh, it, it was an interesting article, and I, I, it was kind of Hoffer asking that he wasn't putting it out as like, this is definitely the tr-. It's more just like, hey, this is kind of a theory I'm working on uh, to try and understand what's going on right now. But he's he's in this this article that we were talking about that he wrote he is kind of saying raising the question is the current moment and in particular the kind of more extreme zealous sjw type stuff is that the latest great awakening in american history like it's it's a it's a different you know form than previous great awakenings but like is, should we think of it sort of that way as like a, as a zealous religious revival movement kind of a thing. And um, what's really interesting is, and especially the timing, I was just talking to him, you know, 24 hours ago, literally um, he is more on, on my wavelength as far as, you know, we both basically at the end of the day, consider ourselves atheists in, in the kind of, you know, not, not believing in anything supernatural kind of a sense and yet we both were kind of somewhat amenable to this idea of the God-shaped hole, at least for some significant percentage of people, not literally for everybody. But both of us were yeah. at least like, 
there might be something there for a lot of people, if not for everybody. And then, you know, the issue becomes like, how do you and can you like consciously and deliberately try to make it so that not just that people who need to fill some sort of God-shaped hole find a way to do it with religion rather than through like politics or something, but also is there any, do you have to just like sit back and, 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 and cross your fingers and hope it works out? Or is there any way to, to increase the likelihood that of the people who need something to fill that God-shaped hole, if they go towards what we would think of as like religion rather than quasi-religious politics or something, is there a way to, to ensure or encourage that the religion that they do use to fill that hole is not of a zealous fundamentalist it's not destructive yeah, in some way. It's not just a religious mass movement or a cult or like, yeah, you know, exactly. yeah, or, exactly. or some kind of like insane, uh, bloodthirsty Christian identity stuff or who knows what, you know? Yeah. Um, because that's, that's the thing is like you, you want, you know, people who need some sort of religion to, to, to serve a role for their lives in order to inoculate them against political mass movements. Is there then the danger that they might get swept up into a religious mass movement that's just as sure. extremist no, and, and fundamentalist and whatever? Um, and I don't know if there's a good answer to that, you know, um, because, yeah, if, if my neighbor is religious and the main thing he's getting from his his religious belief is is some sort of, uh, you know, comfort and solace and and some positive, you know, social aspects of like going to church and hanging out with people. And most of what he's getting from his religion is like, hey, be kind to your neighbor, help help your brother out kind of stuff like I don't have the slightest bit of problem if, if my neighbor's a good dude right. and part of the reason he's a good dude is because he thinks Jesus wants him to like, that doesn't, that doesn't bother me the slightest bit. Right. But, you know, as soon as it turns into, Oh, my neighbor's religious beliefs are causing him to want to, you know, ban things that I enjoy and force his particular <laughs> yeah. personal yeah. morality on me. Then it's like, well, you know, let alone if he's, if he's getting swept up into some kind of like crazy you know, fundamentalist cult or something like this that has even darker uh, potential implications. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a tricky thing. I don't know if there's a a simple way to thread the needle and be like, look, here's, here's like the, the, the path of the social formula or whatever that's, that's going to cause people to only get swept up in the more kind of like positive and, you know, benign aspects of religion. Contemporary examples of of religion. And yeah, you know, looking at it from the um the faith standpoint as a as opposed to like you said forcing your your moral perspectives on someone else um which is not the way uh at all but i mean it's that's that's an interesting question uh that's i mean that's a podcast in and of itself uh is just delving into those ideas specifically like our ideas about politics and and anarchism and how that you know, lends itself or does not to, to different religions and things like that. That's always something I've wanted to talk to you about. One of the areas where I, it sort of leads into it that I disagree with Hoffer on, and I, I want to know if you think I'm misreading this, uh, is he seems to say, and he was talking about, he used the reference of communists that were in like fascist occupied camps having a highly a higher percentage of being resistant towards fascist propaganda than individuals because they had an anchor belief 
Um, and he said that the individual, the rabbit individual, which is what I would consider myself, is actually, you're actually mistaking yourself if you think you're, you have any sort of immunity, that you're more susceptible to caving to an ideology because you have no anchor philosophy or you have no anchor belief to ground you. You're more susceptible it's sort of the God-shaped hole argument, but I, I think he's approaching it in a different way. And I don't agree with him because I think, and this is bias, right? <laughs> I mean, I have to say that right off the cuff because this is what I am. So I'm defending my beliefs here. But I believe that the knowledge that there are other individualists out there is 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 in itself a unifying element and an anchor belief. So the belief in individualism as an ism or as a thing is in itself enough to say, Hey, this is my philosophy and this is my anchoring principle. And it's not hundred percent infallible for sure. There are great things that can come from a sense of collectivity. Uh, and there, there are certain areas where it's necessary, um, but it, it has its own beauty and its own inherent value. And to understand that and to understand individualism as a thing can be in itself insulating as if you're getting persecuted. And I find this anecdotally true because when I'm getting persecuted by the hive minded for my individualism, whether it be a family argument or um, where I work or some other political group attacking me for my beliefs because they know what they are. I take solace in the fact that there are people like you, that there are people like Michael Malice, that there are people out there fighting for the beliefs of individualism and anarchism. And I don't, I find, I do find strength in that. So it's sort of, I guess, contradictory because there is a collective, there's, there is a communal aspect to that, that we are members of a group, right? Um, but the group, the group is in celebration of the self. I think that's where it's different. So I think he's wrong. I mean, I'll, I won't even say off. I will say, I just think he's wrong about the individualist being more susceptible to, to some of these trends and forces than, um, than somebody with a particular anchoring belief. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would say that, that there's nothing inherently wrong and nothing inherently contradictory with like an overall individualism with collectivism that is voluntary and kind of organic and more kind of bottom up and emergent versus collectivism that is coerced and that is top down and that is imposed rather than emergent. And so to me, you know, the, the whole idea of the pure atomized individual is essentially a straw man of collectivists to, to attack individualists and anarchists and libertarians and whatever. Oh, you think that every individual is an Island and an atomized nothing with no connection to anybody. It's like, no, I just don't believe that the way to foster real community and connection and all that is through force. Right. That right. Exactly. It's, it's community, cohesiveness, sociability, like all the mutual uh, interdependence, like all these things are, are not only uh, fine, they're absolutely necessary for anything even remotely like a civilization in a society. Right. But the, the question yeah. is like, is it, is it imposed from above by force or is it something that emerges organically 
uh, through through voluntary interactions and whatever. And yeah, I, I think maybe he uh, Hoffer has a bit of a blind spot to that to that possibility of purely voluntary. Um, you know, collectivism. And, and also, by the way, what you were saying about, you know, it gives you, it gives you some, some solace and comfort, even to know that there are other people who, who think more or less like you do out there. That's backed up by the iterations of the ash conformity test where they would, they <laughs> yeah. would make a plant who actually would say the right answer. Right. Remember um, people were way more likely to stick to the right answer and to speak the truth in the face of, of a crowd saying they're wrong. If, even if they just had one person who said, no, I agree with him. He's right. Those two lines are the, are the ones of the same size, not those ones. And so that shows you how, even if there's a bunch of people saying you're crazy and you're wrong, even just one other person standing up and saying, no, I think this guy's right. It like makes a giant difference. It does make a huge difference. It's, I saw an experiment uh, where they were, it was a woman getting harassed on the street and uh, it was right. It was, I think it was, it was a, a different version of the Ash conformity experiment. Uh, so it wasn't like drawing a line or anything, but it was a woman getting harassed on the street and how many people were, were going to help her. And then it was a woman getting harassed on the street and one person starts to help. And then all of a sudden the numbers of other people who go to help are astronomically different um, because something has broken that loop, that normalcy loop in their mind. And they're like, Oh, okay. I, I, I'm allowed to get involved in this situation, the rules of society. And then the rules of what you normally do every day um, have changed. And now that you see this as an acceptable path uh, because someone else has done it uh, now you will do it as well. So it is, it's right along. It was, it was very interesting and a very f- kind of like fun way to watch it play out like in a, like a normal. Uh, and I, I, <laughs> I, it's so it's so interesting that we're wired that way you know yeah i think one place where you see it in relatively recent history is in the fall of communism especially in the warsaw pact satellite states right where you know it starts with just a handful of radical troublemakers um opposing and criticizing the communist system in places like like poland or czechoslovakia or whatever initially it's like this tiny handful of of people that are that are speaking the truth to power yeah and then eventually it gathers enough steam to where millions of people are coming out into the street to tear down the berlin wall or whatever and to the point where even the the police of the regime are like i'm not gonna mess with this i'm not gonna (laughs) stop these people like the cops are are either standing down or actively joining the protesters you know it, it just shows you that that uh snowball effect i guess um well another this is this kind of shifting gears to another um issue but it it was one that struck me enough that um i wanted to to bring it up in our conversation because i think there's definitely some implications for for kind of recent sociological um history in america which is mass movements and their stance toward the family Right. Because family is one of these things that potentially could at least partially fill that void of, of meaning and satisfaction. I mean, I get a huge amount of meaning and satisfaction out of out of my relationship with my family. Yeah. And I know, oh, you yeah. do too. And so, you know, that's one of many potential things that could kind of insulate you or immunize you against the seduction of a mass movement. So he says, 
almost all our contemporary movements, meaning mass movements, showed in their early stages a hostile attitude toward the family and did all they could to discredit and disrupt it. They did it by undermining the authority of the, of the parents, by facilitating divorce, by taking over the responsibility for feeding, educating, and entertaining the children, and by encouraging illegitimacy. That's an interesting uh, argument there. Um, let's see. Crowded housing, exile, concentration camps, and terror also helped to weaken and break up the family, well, obviously in extreme cases for sure. Still, not one of our contemporary movements was so outspoken in its antagonism towards the family as early Christianity. That's an interesting side note. But yeah. um, kind of saying in the, in the earliest zealous it's, it's stages accurate. of Christianity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, historically, it's absolutely. true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what do, what do you think about that? And um, maybe more so. Uh, to the mass movements of the left currently than of the right, but even to the right, to some extent, you know, we've all uh, heard of or known people who, you know, there's a family member who's a diehard Trump supporter who doesn't want to talk to or be around if the rest of their family is progressives, just as much as vice versa. Yeah. Where, you know, how many family relationships and lifelong friendships have been destroyed by the current mass movements. And yeah, I think you see it that on both sides. I do. I I would say I would, it's almost a requirement on the progressive side, though, um, where I do think it's not quite a re- there's a belief among conservatives that they can like change progressives and they can they can uh, sort of like win them over with an argument. Uh, and the, the belief is reciprocal right on the other side, like, oh, if I just make a good argument, this person's going to change their whole worldview. And, you know, as Horton Scott Horton has said the best way to argue with a leftist is from the left and the best way to argue with a conservative is from the right. Um, you know, he's completely right about that. I mean, you have to speak to what moves the individual and not batter them over the head with your philosophy. Yeah. You can't attack their identity because that'll immediately cause a backfire effect and that'll, that'll cause them to throw their defenses up, um, extra, extra aggressively, I guess. Um, Whereas, yeah, if you're if you're critiquing the left from from a left perspective or or vice versa with the right, you're not attacking the person's identity. You're saying, hey, you've got this identity. That's great. You know, if you're if you were really consistent with this, you you wouldn't believe these these particular things over here. Right. Like if if you're actually a serious, you know, bleeding heart leftist, can you really be behind uh, Biden and Harris considering they're some of the biggest police state Democrats yeah. who <laughs> exist or, you know, whatever, my, or they're, they're terrible. Yeah. War I miss, I miss my else. old like anti CIA Democrats. I want those back. Like, you know, <laughs> I will get them back yeah. soon enough, but they, um, I, I definitely miss that kind of a Democrat. Uh, it's, it's a different breed out there these days. It was politically speaking, uh, at least to argue against. Um, they just, they're a lot more, defend uh they're a lot more apt to just defend institutions than than the old i would say left-winger and they're defending some of the worst ones and some of the ones which previous generations of left-wingers correctly criticized right they're they're defending the cia they're defending the fbi they're defending um the the pentagon just convenience um and you know that it's just convenience and it's it's doing as you're told even on the right like i usually say uh, one of the things I try to I say like conservatives want to go backwards and progressives just want to go forwards, right? So like 
even like, you know, make America great again. Like it's just, there's this yearning from conservatives to go back to a golden age. And there's this yearning from a progressive that we need to hurry up and get to this golden age before it's too late because the world's going to end. Um, and I think that those are, that's pretty much who you're dealing with when you're, when you're talking to these different groups, but to speak to your question, I do definitely see, and I would say to an extent have experienced firsthand an ostracization, ostracization, an ostracizing <laughs> of, um, to a degree of, I, I know you're not part of my group. Therefore, you are against me. It's the Manichaean principle that you've spoke about many times. Uh, if you're not with me, you are against me, and I'm going to I'm going to put you in this other group, even if you don't belong there. Uh, and that happens to me a lot. So, especially in this day and age where it's polarization or bust. I mean, there's no you cannot have nuanced opinions, or you're <laughs> you're, you're a terrible person. You're a commie or a Nazi. Right. Yeah. Well, if you if you wear a face mask, you know, into a store or whatever, you must be a hardcore progressive Democrat who believes, you know, all these particular planks of that yeah. ideology. You know, you're you're probably uh, woke and whatever. Whereas if you don't wear a face mask, why? You must be a MAGA, you know, Trump. <laughs> so fun. It's so true. Who, who agrees with those people. It's like you can't win. Like either choice you make, someone's going to assume you're a member of a cult, even if you're not a member of either. Of yeah. Those two cults. I mean, it's just the time to be reasonable it's it's just not a good time for reasonable people uh you a lot of people are staking their claims with the different virtue signals that are out there and there you know there's just signals on both sides and i do view it more as polarization i do view it as there's very much two different camps now there's splinter groups among the different camps um and depending on which camp triumphs uh, in the future, then those groups will fight amongst themselves for, you know, you could say like the hardcore leftist and just progressivism in general are actually, I think, very different. Uh, I think your Bernie supporter is very different than your Biden supporter um, in their core beliefs, but they're, I think, temporarily kind of aligned against this greater evil that's lurking out there in the woods. Yeah, to me, there's there's maybe three distinct factions currently in the American um, political left. There's there's the corporate Democrats, right? There's the people like Joe Biden and you know Obama and the Clintons and whatever. Then there's the hardcore, true believing Wokies. Now, the corporate Democrats are allied with the Wokies, and they're happy to pander to them and do low cost symbolic things to appease the wokies but they're not real like hillary clinton and and joe biden they don't really believe all the woke crap they they just are you know tactically uh, using it you know for for their own purposes and then there's the wokies who like really that's their thing and they really believe all that stuff and that's their number one priority is all the all the woke stuff and then there's the kind of like you know what you and I would consider the better leftists, right? Your, your Jimmy doors and your, you know, Matt, Matt Taibbi's and Glenn Greenwald's and people like that. People, people who, who are more of you, like your class-based left-wingers um, rather than your race and gender-based left-wingers. And, and the people who, by the way, who are usually pretty good, if not awesome on war and corporate welfare and the police state and like a whole bunch of things we would probably consider, you know, some of the most important issues, 
Well, I mean, those are the most important issues. I mean, no, I don't think anyone could convince me otherwise. Um, and like you said, Greenwald and Door uh, are fantastic on them. And uh, Door, Door to me is like a hero. I mean, I like I disagree with plenty of things that he says, but I mean, he's out there doing work. Like he is, he he he's speaking truth to power, <laughs> quote unquote. I mean, he really is. Um, he and he's not afraid to do it, no matter who is wielding the scepter. You know, he's just going to speak his mind. I love that about him. Uh, same with Glenn Greenwald. I mean, he quit his own newspaper, um, you know, over this exact issue. Uh, so I, I, there are heroes out there. There are people. It's there's. It's not like, and, and on the right too. I mean, you could even look at somebody like Tucker. Uh, and I know he's kind of, you know, hated among the, the progressives, but I think he's good on a lot of these issues, even from a, uh, from a conservative standpoint, especially war. I think he is really good on that. Um, you know, I don't agree with him on a lot of everything on economics and I don't agree with everything he says on a war either, but like, uh, he's the, one of the better ones over there, you know, on that network. <laughs> so it's, it's good to have those people. And those are, Unfortunately, you know, I could show the Jimmy Dore show to some conservative people and they would just dismiss him. And I could, you know, a lot of the things that Tucker says are instantly dismissed by the left just because of the network that he works for. And I think I think if they would just listen to each other, there <laughs> there uh, there's some common ground there uh, and it's the good common ground. So it's. It's important that's what we're missing and that's the dangers of the the polarizing movements you know and i think that's where hoffer's a little light in the text is where he does touch on the dangers of these things uh a little bit but he expects that you understand them as inherent uh that hey mass movements and of these of this nature they're just dangerous but i'm I wish he would have gone into a little bit more historically about why they're so dangerous. He does a little. Uh, I, I think but, he does. He does kind of by implication because one yeah. of the things I also wanted to bring up and, and uh, you bringing up the whole idea of Manichaeanism before is sort of a, a nice transition to that is, and this is something you mentioned when we, we made that bonus episode a few months ago uh, and you brought up Hoffer is the absolute centrality to a successful mass movement of hatred and enemies. So um, another couple of passages that I've, I've got bookmarked. So um, in the section where he brings up this issue of unifying agents, and he says, first and foremost, number one is hatred. So he says, hatred is the most accessible and comprehensive of all unifying agents Mass movements can rise and spread without belief in a God, but never without belief in a devil. And I think this was a quote you actually shared when we spoke on that bonus episode a while ago. And then he continues, usually the strength of a mass movement is proportionate to the vividness and tangibility of its devil. Um, And then he goes a a bit further on um, a few more sections in, he talks about suspicion and kind of dovetailed to this idea of hatred, of having a devil, of having an enemy. And um, let's see, he says that um, suspicion is also something that um, can, can meld together a mass movement. So he says, um, and, and not just having an external enemy, 
but also perhaps in addition to an external enemy or boogeyman, also being witch hunting for enemies within. So, oh, yeah. so Hoffer writes about this. He says, the awareness of their individual blemishes and shortcomings inclines the frustrated to detect ill will and meaning and uh, meanness in their fellow men. Self-contempt, however vague, sharpens our eyes for the imperfections of others. We usually strive to reveal in others the blemishes we hide in ourselves. And then he goes along to say, uh, thus, when the frustrated congregate in a mass movement, the air is heavy laden with suspicion. There is prying and spying, tense watching and a tense awareness of being watched. The surprising thing is that this pathological mistrust within the ranks leads not to dissension, but to strict conformity. Knowing themselves continually watched, the faithful strive to escape suspicion by adhering zealously to prescribed behavior and opinion. Strict orthodoxy is as much the result of mutual suspicion as of ardent faith. Fear of one's neighbors, one's friends, and even one's relatives seems to be the rule within all mass movements. Now and then, innocent people are deliberately accused and sacrificed in order to keep suspicion alive. Suspicion is given a sharp edge by associating all opposition within the ranks with the enemy, threatening the movement from without. So you tie in the enemy within to the bigger boogeyman outside. And he says this, yeah. this enemy, the indispensable devil of every mass movement, is omnipresent, and it is the sacred duty of the true believer to be suspicious. Now this, absolutely, this, when I read it, right away sparked in my mind and and probably you have similar thoughts as well with that passage think about the way the kind of wokey cult is constantly throwing parts of its own members under the bus right they're oh, yeah. constantly witch hunting not just for conservatives to be like hey look he said this racist thing 12 years ago or he tweeted this sexist thing 10 years ago or whatever or oh this guy dressed up in blackface in the 80s um, if they're, they don't just direct that against people who are in, you know, the enemy cult. They also very often throw their own people under the bus and, and quite zealously. And it, it creates this atmosphere of paranoia and suspicion, this snitch culture where everybody is looking at each other's Twitter timelines going back to like 2008. <laughs> for like the one tweet you did that could by today's standards be construed as offensive or whatever. And then try and, and then on top of it, try and unperson you and, and ruin your entire career and blacklist you off of like everything that exists. Um, for, yeah. Unless you're the governor of Virginia. He, yeah. he, I don't know. Our governor can get away with it for some reason. I don't know why yeah. he's in so yeah, it's weird because because some people have been you know like uh, like Cuomo is, is been starting to be sure, thrown yeah. under the bus for some sexual harassment like in the Me Too stuff which you know you could you could argue whether or not Me Too should be considered like a subset of of wokeism or whether it's kind of its own thing separately or whatever. I would I would classify it. Definitely. I, I think in its in its most excessive cases it would be like there's legit cases where like I think it's different and I'll tell. I, I'll explain why real quick, because I don't, I do think that it's a separate, I think it was a hijacked movement. I guess that's the way that I would put it. I think it came and was born from a very honest and real and uh, important situation and group of situations and um, something that did need to be, have some sort of societal reform and people needed to have like kind of their eyes opened a little bit um, about some things. It was very quickly hijacked 
even by replacing like the token uh, spokesperson with a, a like Alyssa Milano or whoever it was um, to something, you know, to, a, you know, it was replaced the, the spokesperson. It was a very controllable person that they kind of like put in as like the figurehead of it. Um, and they took it out of the hands of the people who were swinging axes in every direction. They were calling out people from every political side and political spectrum uh, as it should have been. Um, and it became sort of a weapon to be wielded instead of a like, hey, this is this is some stuff we need to talk about that's been going on. Uh, and we're going to we're going to kind of be heard about this. I, so I think that it definitely had its feet. The movement is is kind of misunderstood and by some and then again um misused by others which is often the case right is often the case and no go ahead go ahead i I, I agree with that like that with the me too stuff like legitimate cases where people were getting away with rape and things like that like i hey those you know do whatever to those people i i have i have no yeah oh absolutely no sympathy or whatever for people who are like going around raping people and using money and power to to get away with it or whatever but yeah it it goes off it goes off the rails um absolutely it starts to be used sometimes uh inappropriately and indiscriminately and starts to equate things that shouldn't be equated like someone saying something kind of offensive is now equated to someone like literally putting hands and physically like come on these are different they're both bad but like we got to be able to differentiate between levels of badness you know we can't or it becomes meaningless yeah yeah we can't Um, say someone we can't say that someone who once had some jerks like cat call at them inappropriately is in the same category as someone who was like brutally raped you know at knife point or something like that but but then also we we could kind of apply that to really many aspects of wokeism right i mean we could say like yeah in cases where people are like legitimately being you know harmed or attacked or whatever because of their race or because they're gay or whatever like yeah that's that's stuff that's worth you know when it when it is a thing like putting a spotlight on it and and trying to do something about it sure but then you know how long until it goes off the rails and and starts you know collaterally damaging people who are really either not guilty of anything or not guilty of anything that's really that bad yeah and then also until you have um uh, dishonest actors come in and as you were alluding to before kind of hijack and co-opt it for their own purposes right and turn it into yeah. a weapon for their own little you know either for their own vanity or or for their own ideological crusade or both yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and and i think it it takes the bite out of it takes the bite out of the language so i'll get like i'll give you an example like it used to mean something if you were called a racist like now it doesn't really even mean anything like that can mean anything now if somebody call accuses someone of being a racist now like i don't even know what that means like it could just mean they're just like born white <laughs> like i don't i don't even know what it means but it used to mean like it that word used to mean something to me it used to mean like oh this person hates somebody because of the color of their skin or their beliefs or something like that and um that's that's the only reason they hate them and that's bad you know and like that uh i don't it doesn't even mean that anymore so like the language language is important and when language becomes hijacked um that's problematic for society. I hate using that term, but it yeah, is. Well, it, it can dilute the the punch of certain terms, right? Because if if rapist is the same word for someone who like literally grabbed someone and forcibly, you know, had sex with them, 
And we're also going to use that same word for someone who like just says something kind of offensive and inappropriate or whatever, then yeah, you're, you're diluting the punch of saying so-and-so is a rapist, right? And the same thing with racist and the same thing yeah. with a lot of these things. Yeah. Um, and, and those are important terms to preserve. Yeah, it almost kind of becomes uh, a boy, for the deserving. A boy who cried wolf <laughs> dynamic, right? Where you know, yeah. today if someone's called racist, you're like, is he actually, or did he just say something that some progressive disagreed with, you know? Um, yeah. And I was thinking about this kind of from the other side, um, just in the past few days, I, I, it occurred to me, you know, if, I don't know, six years ago, if someone just asked me with no context or whatever, someone just said to me, do you consider yourself anti-racist? Six years ago, I'd have like, without hesitating, been like, yeah, yeah, I'm anti-racist. Fine. Because I'd have been like, yeah, I think racism is stupid. And uh, generally I'm not a fan of it. And I, you know, I certainly don't want to see it having um, significant power over people and, and uh, you know, at, at best it's dumb. You know, if it's just someone sitting around having negative thoughts about people, it's just kind of dumb. And if it takes the form of someone actually going and trying to hurt someone else for their for their race or whatever, uh, that's evil. And so if you had asked me six years ago, do you consider yourself anti-racist? I'd have been like, sure. Today, I'd have to put a giant asterisk and go, do you mean just do I think racism itself as traditionally defined is dumb <laughs> and bad? Or do you mean I have to subscribe to all of the Maoist tenets of BLM.com, right? Right. Exactly. Well, exactly. That's exactly it is um, if you have a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard, does it mean you want to be part of a group that is against police brutality or does it mean you believe in communism? Right. <laughs> like it's it's the, the lines are so muddied. And otherwise, if you've got the thin blue line sticker on bumper sticker, does it mean you support the police or does it mean you're a fascist? Like uh, there's the way that people read things now has, I mean, there's no other word to use except polarization. I mean, that's what it is. It's zero sum thinking. Um, and you're sort of part of this zero sum Manichaean game. And I, it's the hijacking of language is something, whether you're reading George Orwell or, or Hoffer, that is something that's of extreme importance uh, and that everyone should be concerned with and pay attention to. You see it a lot like when people use, uh, what, what are the two terms that people conflate all the time? They say um, fair and equal. Like those are terms. We want things to be fair and equal and da, 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 da. And they, they lump those together very quickly in their speeches and their monologues or whatever, as if they're the same thing when they're can antonyms sometimes. Uh, and that you even see people like now adding like freedom into that. Like that's, it's like freedom, equality and fairness are like, they kind of view them as like all like interdependent on each other or even kind of the same thing. And they're completely their own ideas and very often at odds with each other. And when we do that, when we, when we change the language so drastically, uh, not only does it confuse things, but I think sometimes it just leads people in the wrong direction. And it, I find myself even falling victim to wondering, does this person believe in the doctrine of everything of that bumper sticker that's on their car? Do they know everything that this group believes in, or are they just trying to say, Hey, I think, 
that a lot of what I, uh, you know, I think somebody getting uh, choked to death because they're selling a Lucy cigarettes bullshit and we need to do something about it. Like, are they just frustrated with that and they're trying to speak to that? Or are they trying to say like, we need to change the economic construct of our society? You know, I don't know. Yeah. Like, and, and, do, I, and do, I don't think they know either. <laughs> do, do we need to abolish the traditional family because it is an oppressive uh, uh, leftover element of whiteness and patriarchy, you know? Right. And I, you, you don't know. I think, and you alluded to this before, I think the, the affluent that went to university thinks one way about it. And I think the blue collar people that live across the street from me think a different way about it. And I'm much more <laughs> sympathetic and in agreeance with the, the latter than the former. I, I, somebody made a great quote and I, and I have stolen it and I say it all the time now, which is like, I have much more in common with the modern day immigrant than I do with the university student. Uh, personally, like in just my worldview, like family, hard work. Um, and for me, like, a, you know, a belief in God, like I, I just tend to like, I have just much more in common with that group of people than I do with like the Marxist university student. So it's like, I, I don't know. I, th I think a lot of times people are talking about two different animals under the same flag. Uh, and it, it complicates things. I, I don't know what their solution is to that, but it definitely lends itself to being caught up in a mass movement if you don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, the beginning of all wisdom is to to define your terms and and to get, call things by their proper name and whatever. And when people are, you know, deliberately and strategically manipulating the language. Um, yeah. it, it becomes difficult because the language is how we make sense of reality because we make sense of reality in part by talking to each other and kind of, kind of double checking each other. Like, Hey, are you seeing the same crazy thing over here? And am I crazy? Or <laughs> yeah. is this really as crazy as it looks to me kind of thing. Right. And that's how we check each other and, and kind of maintain our sanity is, is by kind of like fact checking each other, so to speak. But if, if the language is, is completely, you know, um, wrecked and, and manipulated. And if um, we can't even agree on the basics of like logic being a thing, um, how, how can we, how can we figure anything out? Going back to real quick, what you said about that a movement needs an evil force more than it needs anything else. Uh, I've always equated to that to like, you can't have a great movie without a, without a great villain. You know, like your your movie's only as good as the bad guy. You know, Darth Vader is why Star Wars is great, not Luke Skywalker. He's the he's the more captivating character. Likewise, you can see some films that are pretty good, but they just had a really weak villain. Um, like I think Blade could have been a much better movie. I just didn't like the bad guy. You know, so it didn't work for me. You know, but uh, even though I'm a big like Wesley Snipes fan. We've talked about this before. Uh, when we, I think we did our demolition Man <laughs> podcast, but um, which I, it was on the other day, actually me and my, my wife watched it and I had her laugh at the whole thing, but um, it's, you know, the bad guy, the evil force is what's important. And even if you look at the movements of religion, uh, it is often the most defining characteristic of that religion is it's not so much the savior necessarily, as it is the damnation and um, 
hey, here's this thing that's going to save you from the damnation, but be really afraid of this damnation because it's pretty bad. Look at it. You know, and whether you're talking about Christianity or uh, any other religion, Judaism or, you know, Muslim, um, the, the evil force is, I think, central to what gets the converts and those uh, the most adherent to the movement. I, I think it's what gets their juices flowing the most. The savior is more the afterthought, I, I think. It's the fear of the evil or being part of the evil or grouped in that, that aspect um, that I think is the driving force. Yeah. I mean, that explains the seeming need of to, to pick on the woke crowd again for a moment, because right now I think with Trump, you know, being out of office, I think Trump's cult is starting to fade, even though it's, it's still a thing for sure. But but I feel like it's it's kind of losing a lot of its a lot of its strength yeah. and, and coherence, whereas the the wokies seem to be peaking or approaching their peak in a way, and um, their their pathological need to believe that there's like Ku Klux Klan and neo Nazis hiding behind every door <laughs> and every yeah. it's it's very similar to how like in the George W Bush years the right acted like al qaeda was hiding under everybody's bed and like about to take over the country and whatever and the same way Absolutely. Like, during the red scare you know um people acted like like communists were just everywhere in america like just completely infested with communists throughout america when in reality it was like a tiny handful of weirdos who were communists you know turn your neighbor in yeah. right and it's it's um it's like that, like the rise of Karen culture, right? In the United States. I mean, that's, uh, there's probably a better name for it than that. But I mean, that's, we'll speak in contemporary language. Uh, everybody will know what we're talking about. Uh, it's, it's Orwellian in that regard. And it is what Hoffer's talking about in that passage that you read. It becomes sort of the national pastime of the converted. And, what they're supposed to be doing. I'm and it's a virtue signal in and of itself. Uh, is look, I'm a good person because I'm turning in, you know, this other person for not not believe, or I'm I'm at least highlighting that they don't believe what I what I believe. I'm in. ratting out this person for being a witch. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know how you could not see it as that, yeah. but I, people don't. Um, and I don't want to play the holier than thou card. But I think it goes, I mean, it's baked into the ideology of anarchism as I think is a healthy amount of skepticism at everything going on around you. Uh, And if you're not, if you're not being skeptical in in now in 2021, I don't know. I I don't know. (laughs) Like you just lived through four years of just absolutely bonkers, just political media. And it doesn't look like it's going to slow down. And one of the fears is that we're going to continue to get this sort of tumultuous society that is going to be really ripe for what they thought Donald Trump was. Maybe there is one out there, like all the things that they thought he really was like that might be somewhere out there gaining steam you know, and you might really get that next time. And it might be like a, a more unstoppable force, just like all the things that, uh, 
I remember hearing hearing about uh you know conservatives talk about how Obama had a secret army and he wasn't going to um he wasn't going to allow the election to happen back you know it was all the Muslim same and yeah. and yeah all these things when really really he was George Bush 3 uh you know is <laughs> what you got um you got the same amount of torture and drone strikes and everything else if not if that all got amped up um even more so but yeah it's i don't know I don't know what the answer is. And I don't think Hoffer knows what the answer is. I think he's just trying to give, I don't even think an instruction manual is the right way to put it, but a, a healthy way of saying, Hey, th- this is who's susceptible. So if you're in one of these groups, make sure you understand that you are susceptible to you're just as susceptible as anybody else. And maybe even more so to a mass movement or a hysterical movement. One thing that he said that that gave me a little bit of a white pill feeling is when he talks about leaders arising of the mass movement and he really stresses it's, it's some of his most like non hedging language where he basically says there has to be some sort of a leader who emerges or else the mass movement won't really fully form and, and cohere together. And I was thinking about it. You know, Trump is probably fading from the scene. He's probably damaged goods. I know people are talking about, oh, he's going to come back in 2024. I'm, I'm skeptical. I mean, I was, I was wrong about him becoming president in the first place. So who knows? But, um, you know, I think he's he as an individual is probably on the way out. I think just because of his age and where he's at and everything. But, yeah, I think that's a pretty good guess. But maybe a little bit of a white pill is that. On the other side, on the on the real true believer woke side, there is no one leader, at least currently. There, there's nothing like no. one charismatic leader that personifies and unifies all of the woke uh, crowd together. And and yeah. that might all actually the real be a good crazies thing. have sort of been. Uh, I don't want to say like demoralized, but a lot of a lot, and this is what. I think are is good about people like door and people like that on the left and people like Tucker on the right is that you get, um, they'll call out their own sometimes. And I think that's refreshing. And I think it's because of people like that, that you do get some of those potential leaders would, uh, you know, they're exposed, you know, or, or it gets the grassroots people in those particular political circles may be looking twice or saying, Hey, you know, maybe I need to look at AOC a little more carefully here, you know, uh, or maybe I need to look at, you know, Donald Trump a little more carefully here. So I do think that there's a, at least some of that going on and that's a good thing. And I think you're right. And it's a point that malice brings up too, when he talks about uh, the white pill and he'll share some tweet of just some buffoonery that a politician has said or some policy that and he said, if this is who our enemy is, then we're then we stand a chance, you know, and I think that's a good point is that the leaders are showing themselves as incompetent and untrustworthy and the belief in the benevolent politician, which is one of the important legs of the status stool is uh has kind of been dismantled and that's a great thing for us and through people who are against many of these mass movements especially the more hysterical ones and kind of against the state in general i think that's good the leaders are incompetent and that's kind of what you want especially when it's this top-down oppressive type of leader and not an organic helpful one probably a, a great place to 
wrap things up, I think, is is end on a little bit of redemption in the third act. Unless is is there are there any particular uh, uh, points about the book or, or things to say about the book that we didn't hit that you think are just absolutely? No, uh, I think I think that's a good general overview. Sometimes you and I get going, so it's hard to remember everything that we've covered. But I, you know, it's it is one of those that I do think people should just read for themselves. It's such a quick read, and it's such a fun one to like use on contemporary examples. And uh, the ex- historical examples that he uses a lot are are the rise of fascism and the rise of the Bolsheviks. So those are well taught, also. And people should have a good grasp, even with a rudimentary sort of education. People should be able to like know what he's talking about. So I think it's a good, easily digestible book. I did I did want to get into like what Strauss and Howell would say about the next hero generation and where they fit into the SJWs and all this stuff. That's a totally different topic for another time. But uh, but I am really interested in your thoughts on that kind of stuff. So maybe we can talk about that in the future uh, and what sort of what the future holds. Everything's sort of a mystery for me going future, going forward. I have no guess where we're headed. Uh, I think we're in sort of uncharted waters for me. Certainly someone out there has a good prediction of where all these movements are heading, what direction they're they're steering us in, but I don't know. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I can see a whole bunch of different potential contingencies playing out in different ways, some of them good, some of them not yeah. so good. So it's it's hard to say. There's just so many different variables that could go, you know, one way or the other. Uh, overall, I, I would strongly rec- recommend the book to anybody listening who's not read it. I think there's a lot of insight um, into both historical and current events. My main criticism of the book, other than I, I think he's got a few blind spots, some of which I can understand given his time and place when he's writing this. Like some of 51. Which, some of which are harder to so forgive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certain things I, I would have liked him to address that I can kind of forgive because of when he was writing this. My biggest criticism of the book is actually a technical one. I was annoyed by how often he used kind of weak, passive voice sentences. And to be fair, I think that's probably due to two things. I think number one in the early to mid 20th century, academic writing was often awkward, passive sentence writing, where like lots of sentences will start with the phrase, it is. And I think part of it's just that's how academics often wrote in the early to mid 20th century, because it was a way to have the pretense of detached objectivity. Yeah. Uh, and also, like you were saying before, his his German background, right, that his parents were German immigrants, and he kind of had a German accent his whole life. Uh, German is a language that's very prone to what in English would be considered like weak, awkward, passive voice sentences. I that think. makes sense. So I, I can excuse some of that. Like, I think the points he's making are still very valid. And in places like some of the passages I read, his writing is very vivid and eloquent, but very, he, he, he starts like if he, if I, if he was a student of mine and I was reading his paper, I would mark, Hey, this is a weak opening. This is a weak, passive voice. sentence. Yeah. You know? No, I get that. Um, um, I would agree with that. And I would, I would just say that it does fizzle for me a bit. Like it's really exciting to read. And then there's not much of a conclusion um, at all, which maybe, you know, is by, by design. But for me, that part just doesn't work too great. But I, I just love how the book is applicable to every sect, whether you want to talk about um, looking at the modern progressive movement or even historically the progressive movement, whether you want to look at um, religion, whether you want to look at conservatism, whether you want to look at something like um, the need 
for absolutism and then look at objectivism, you know, and sort of like the cult of objectivism, even though like I'm more sympathetic to a lot of their ideas, um, it does have like that cultish kind of vibe of absolutism and the need for a boogeyman. That's probably one of the groups we should have picked on a little bit that we kind of left out. But um, again, I'm more sympathetic towards them, but they're definitely guilty of a lot of the same things. But, uh, you know, it's just good to look at. I think it's a good lens to put over your camera the next time you're taking pictures of the world. Uh, And that's sort of how I've used this book. It's been very instrumental in the way that I look at things and the way that I kind of make sure that I'm not falling victim to some of my own human inadequacies that we all have. And it, it, it helps keep me grounded and, and understand also what other people are going through, especially now. I think it's very applicable. So. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I would say, you know, for someone to read this book, definitely look around at current events, definitely look, look at history of mass movements uh, that, that you might be familiar with. But yeah, one important part is in some ways the hardest part, which is turning the mirror on yourself and saying, okay, Maybe not, maybe not currently, but at points in my life, have I been kind of the true believer or at least kind of heading in that direction? Maybe I wasn't all the way there because, you know, I did look back at earlier stages in my political development, like when I first really became uh, a hardcore libertarian anarchist, whatever. And, you know, when I was the annoying jerk (laughs) who's newly converted to the crowd, who is like, just won't shut up about it and is constantly trying to shove it at people who are not asking for it, you know, and, and, and eventually I moved past that. And part of it was I got enough meaning and satisfaction out of improving my, because definitely when I first really got zealously into these ideas, part of it was I was frustrated. My own life wasn't going so well. Um, I was having various types of personal and financial and, and family issues and whatever. And so then it's like, Oh, well, it's the, it's the fucking feds fault, uh, you know? (laughs) And and it's like, well, on some level, some of it is the feds fault to be fair, but like, Hey, there's probably a shit ton of things I could fix that again, back to the, the clean up your room. idea. There's a shit ton of things I can fix in my own circle of control. that could do a lot more to improve my daily life than, you know, hoping that the fed is going to get fixed. If only I could force everyone so, to read economics in one lesson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anybody listening to, to, you know, think about that, whether you're currently in that state of being or whether maybe in, in earlier phases of your life and, and definitely look for improvement and meaning and satisfaction above all else to, to yourself and your immediate circle of control and don't don't be like the true believer and displace it all and project it all outside and then get wrapped up in some damn cult. So I would my my parting uh, uh, words of wisdom, take it or leave it free advice. So, yeah. Well, always a pleasure, CJ. Hold on. You're dark. I can't hear you. There you go. Had had to fix a wire. there. Well, I was saying it's always, it's always a pleasure. It was good talking, uh, talking about the book. Likewise, always great to talk to you, and I really appreciate you, um, you know, taking all this time. I know usually when we get to talking, it runs on. For yeah, a long it's time. usually. <laughs> I appreciate it. I know you got stuff to do, and and I do as well. But uh, hopefully, the listeners will appreciate this, and you know, give give some folks some stuff to think about, and maybe another book to read. Like we all need, like we all need some more stuff on our reading right. list. Adios. Good talking to you.
I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. Thank you. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.